0: You're about to listen to another Bonversation. If you like this episode, you can find more at johnlebon.com. Bonversations feature the most interesting and insightful people in the act realm and beyond. Every episode is made possible by people like you who value and support independent media. Now here's your host, JLB.
1: It wasn't a tent, it was this magnificent... Sing. So you've heard this lady on the Infinite Plane Society and on fakeologist.com many times. But for the first time, we've got to hear it here at com and com. Lynn Ertel coming to us from somewhere in the east of the U.S. Lynn, I've been listening to you for many years now. It's a great pleasure and honor to have you here on the Bonversations. Thanks for joining us.
2: I appreciate this opportunity. I'm actually, I'm here in central Maryland. It's like 10 after, it's about a little afternoon. The sun's out central maryland east coast and you're it's early morning where you are right no
1: it's 7 p.m in the evening here in beautiful plovdiv bulgaria and i've been looking forward to this chat all day well i'm not a bulgarian officially however i'm a i'm a resident i'm a legal resident here and once you've been here for a couple of years you're basically an immigrant aren't you so i'm basically an immigrant here in bulgaria can you believe that
2: would you ever would you ever consider applying for asylum in Bulgaria? As a political refugee from Australia,
1: well, I don't because have in to. A way- I would consider doing that, but I don't have to. I'm, a, I'm legally a resident. I got a lawyer and I did everything by the books. I did everything by the books, Lynn, and I'm officially a five year resident here. And at the end of the five years, I'm allowed to apply for uh, citizenship. But the problem is, you have to, there's a couple things you have to do. And one of them is learn the language, which I'm telling you right now, difficult. this is a difficult language difficult. to learn. Oh, yes, very yeah. much.
2: Sounds like Russian, a lot like Russian.
1: Well, it looks like Russian. They use the same alphabet, but apart from a few words, they're very, very different. So I've got a bunch of little points on my dot point list here, and I'm going to go through them right now so listeners get an idea of what we're going to talk about today. And then you can tell me which of those topics you want to talk about first. We can add more to the dot list if there's other topics you want to add to the list. Let's go through these just quickly. I've got written down 9-11, Corona, Do Viruses Exist, Alex Jones, Bill Cooper, Fakeologist.com, Infinite Plane Society, Quantum of Conscience, Dave J, Marcus Allen, Chris Kendall, Realize Radio, Human Vibration, The Shape of the Earth, Ancient History, because I heard you talking about ancient history on Fakeologist a month ago. Right. The War Hoax Concept, because I know that you and I have different opinions on that, and that's fine. The so-called Truth Definitely. Movement, The Future of Society, uh, Good, or no, is it a good idea to have kids? That's an interesting one. Is the UFC real or fake? Because you are a BJJ practitioner, aren't you, Lynn? Yes, I know you are. And I added this last one to the list during the pre-call when we were chatting. Schadenfreude, because I know you've got some thoughts about that topic. So that's my little dot point there, uh, Lynn. That's my dot point list. Anything you think I should add to that list?
2: That's great. You you got you got about as wide a coverage as I could think of. I think uh, You left out maybe ancient Roman history, Christianity, religion. <laughs> There's all kinds of things I could... Go off on, but, uh, or computer science, you know, we could
1: discuss. I'll add that to the list as well. But you know what? A lot of the people here, Lynn, they will not be familiar with you. Most of them are. They've heard you on Infinite Plan Society or on Fakeologist. But for those who haven't heard of you before, Lynn, can you give us a brief introduction to who you are and how you got into this? What kind of topics you're interested in? All of this kind of stuff. I'll shut up for a moment. You tell listeners who are you and what are you interested in?
2: Well, I'll tell you the story and interrupt me at every point that you think, you know, it might be interesting to do so. Um, I'm a child of the Cold War. That's something that people your age probably don't have much of a memory of. But if you want to get a handle on it, think about the active shooter drills that are a regular occurrence in the American public education system. Probably, they're probably doing it in the Catholic schools too. These active shooter drills where they hurt, you see them where they hurt the kids out of the school with their hands up in the air, you know. Um, well, we didn't have active shooter drills, but we had uh, we had fire drills, of course. Everybody has fire drills. But we had um, nuclear attack drills where, and this was kind of a newly built school, the elementary school I attended. had just been built in that neighborhood. And uh, even though it didn't have air conditioning, in those days we didn't have air conditioning. That's kind of hard to imagine, I know, but... And the way this drill worked is uh, a certain uh, bells would go off and uh, messages over the intercom, and everybody would have to line up. so imagine I'm in the fifth, fourth, fifth, sixth, yeah, I remember them as beginning with the second and third grade, and they stopped they stopped uh right about the time that uh, the JFK assassination occurred. actually, they stopped. Technically, I think they stopped after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Although they did continue in areas of the Midwest, we stopped having them uh, right about the time of the Kennedy, but, but sometime between the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was uh, 1962, and the Dallas uh, JFK event, which is November '63. But what they would do is they would they would line you up. You'd march out into the hallway. There'd be a row of lockers. You've all seen it, you know, your typical modern public school. You'd have to get down on your knees, stick your head between your knees, cup your hands over the back of your head so that your head was completely covered by your arms. That was to protect you from flying glass, we were told. And even though a lot of these buildings had civil defense shelters, I mean, you you might be able to still see that uh, symbol, for a civil defense shelter in subways or in some buildings, but more and more they've disappeared but no we were we were paraded right out into the hallway. We have to line up against the lockers, get down on our knees, stick our and if you can look at pictures of this if you like, there's plenty of images of it, it those were not faked for the most part. um no, this really happened, and so I grew up in that environment where there was hanging over you. The threat of mutually assured destruction, as it was called, which was a, which was presumed to be a possible nuclear exchange between the evil communist Soviet Union and the freedom-loving United States, and then somewhere out over the horizon were the Chinese communists. We knew there were a lot of them, and they really didn't enter into this until they exploded their first hydrogen device, allegedly, in about uh, 1959, 1960. They the, all the papers announced that the Chinese communists now had a nuclear capability of course that wouldn't mean they would have the missiles to deliver it, that was the real threat and if you think about the the uh, made for TV movie that was, I guess it was in the 80s called The Day After have you ever seen this John? Have I have because the I Day got After?
1: right into this nuclear war hoax you know I spoke with Ray West from Nuke Lies. are you familiar with this guy? Ray West from NukeLies.org or BigLies.org does that name ring a bell to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a great site. It's terrific. And he was a guest on Bonversations number four, I think, a couple of years ago. He was one of the first guests I got on the show. And I first heard him from fakeologist.com back in like 2015 or 16, I want to say. So when I was doing my prep for the interview with him, I went back through a whole bunch of those nuclear war. They're propaganda films, aren't they, really? Let's be honest. They're propaganda films, all of these films. And I went back and watched that one in particular. And it is straight up propaganda, isn't it? Because people watch these films... And, okay, they know that these films are fictional, but they internalize them as though, oh, if a nuclear bomb went off, this could happen to me, right? Straight up propaganda.
2: Well, but isn't... Aren't we kind of blaming the messenger or shooting the messenger there? Because couldn't you say that about all art, culture, literature? I mean, that's a fictitious story. But what gives the story its R of believability is in the back of your mind, you know that these missiles exist, ICBMs they're called, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And also, you know, we were told there were nuclear subs out there that could just pull right up on the coast. And there was another movie called, uh, that was based on a classic novel by Neville Shute called On the Beach. You should be interested in this because it takes place, all the action takes place in Australia. You ever seen On the Beach? I don't think I've seen that one. No. Yeah, but that, you got to watch. That's from the 60s. Same kind of thing, but it's after the war. It's after the war has occurred, and Gregory Peck, big star at the time, is the captain of this submarine, this nuclear sub, and they've heard that the war has occurred, and but you don't really get to see the evidence of it until they surface, in, I think, in, like, San Francisco harbor... And the periscope goes up, and all you see is a deserted city. But it turns out in the the theme of on the beach is that Australia is the last place left where this massive cloud of poisonous nuclear fallout. Because there's been, because you know, the claim was if you have a nuclear exchange, you can't. You can. In fact, they even have a line in the day after where they come up after the missile attack and the sun's shining, it's bright out. And uh, the girl, the little girl runs out and says, oh, it's, oh, it's what's wrong? Everything's fine. And the guy who's sort of one of the protagonists in the story, he says, no, he says, you can't smell it. You can't see it. You can't hear it. You can't feel it. But the radio, it's there. The poisonous radiation is there. And then as, as, the day after procedure, you begin to see their hair starts to fall out. You begin to see the physical evidence of radi- what we called, what is called radiation poisoning presumed to occur in the aftermath of a nuclear attack. Well, in on the beach, this poisonous cloud has spread over the earth. You've got to watch this, Be- precisely because it takes place in Australia, almost all the action takes place right there in Australia because ultimately this nuclear sub has nowhere left to go that's safe. For some reason Australia, because it's down under, we're getting into a kind of Mandela here, aren't we? Uh, We might get into a Mandela discussion.
1: I had a Mandela believer, I'm sorry to interrupt you, I had a Mandela believer try and tell me that Australia's capital didn't used to be Canberra. And I was like, when? Because I'm, at this time I think I was 34. I'm like, I'm 34 years old when I was a kid. It was definitely Canberra. That's the thing with a lot of these Mandela effects. They work on people who don't already know the truth of the matter. So when they get confused on a certain thing... Like, for instance, what's the capital of Brazil? It's Brasilia. Well, a lot of people don't know that. And so when they find out that the capital of this massive country in South America sounds just like the name of the country, they think to themselves, gee, I really should have known that. So they start to think, gee, maybe it has changed. But with me, if some Mandela believer or promoter comes to me and tries to say... Oh it didn't it used to be Canberra. I'm like you're talking to the wrong guy here, buddy. Talking to the wrong person.
2: Well, imagine you land, imagine you're a tourist landing in Pretoria, Cape Town or Johannesburg, South Africa. I don't know why you wanna go, why tourists wanna to go there now, but and and you say, "Oh, uh, Mandela effect." What do you think the average South African, any of them, black, white, whoever they happen to be, would think of you? Coming there and trying to tell them that Nelson Mandela died in prison when he was the president. <laughs> they elected him president there before he died. I guess he has passed on now. He is dead. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's the official story, yeah.
2: Right. But um, Hollywood made a movie with Michael Caine playing um, De Klerk, F.W. De who was the very last white president of south africa and Sidney portier come on we all knew Sidney portier is he played nelson mandela now imagine how stupid you would if if you were a tourist an american tourist (laughs) arriving in south africa trying to convince them that oh the and mention the mandela effect he even brought up and they'll say what do you mean mandela effect why do you call it mandela effect You know, you might explain to them, well, Ed McMahon uh, was working for family publishers, not Publishers Clearinghouse, and uh, the Kit Kat used to have a hyphen in the middle, and uh, a dolly in uh, that crappy, mediocre movie, I can't even remember the name of it, has braces or doesn't have braces, you know. Yeah, but why do you call it the Mandela Effect? Well, because the individual who coined this, who uses the name Fiona Broom, but that's not her real name, somehow introduced the idea that uh, there are two, there's a separate reality where Nelson Mandela never, never was released from prison which was a big deal, it was a worldwide event never was, ele- was in a political campaign in, a, in an allegedly democratic election in the Republic of South Africa, and never was elected president and served as president of the Republic of South Africa for several years and never divorced Winnie Mandela and all the things and never was made a Knight of Malta because that's another thing that went on yeah Nelson Mandela a lifelong member of the Communist Party of South Africa I believe resigned from the party and divorced Winnie Mandela and subsequently was made a he received honors from He may have gotten an OBE in order of the British Empire. This is a guy who was convicted in South African court of being a terrorist, you understand.
1: It's crazy and stuff, and to- I didn't really know about any of that until I went to South Africa. And I spoke about these topics with a guest a few conversations ago, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But just going back to what you said about The Day After. So let me just read from the Wikipedia page. The Day After is an American television film that first aired in November 1983 on ABC Television Network. More than 100 million people watched the film during its initial broadcast. That's a lot of people. More than a 100 million. Now, that number could be fudged, Lynn, but from what they're saying, this was a big TV event. Is that how you remember it?
2: It's only a movie. It's only a movie. It's only... Have you ever gone to a horror film... You know, there's some pretty creepy horror films in the 60s. Like Night of the Living Dead really gave me nightmares for months. Not gave but it it disturbed me for months after I was really, you know, some of the images of it. But now, I don't know, now with all the stuff that's out there, Night of the Living Dead probably, or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, no one would probably think it's a a big deal. But yeah, in those days, in the 19... Remember, we only had three basic television networks. ABC, the American Broadcasting Company, CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting Company, NBC, the National Broadcasting Company, and then um, then there was a law in the '60s. Along came PBS, uh, Public Broadcasting System, taxpayer subsidized, and then a little later than that, uh, along came Rupert Murdoch, an Australian. He came at, at the at the Grand Master of Australian and, and British tabloid media i mean if i'm telling you if you were going to give anybody a lifetime award for cheapening and vulgarizing the taste i I know we've got howard stern here in america and he made porn and especially anal porn fashionable on talk radio which a lot of people listen to i mean at morning drive everybody listened to howard stern
1: you know the phycologist is a big fan of howard stern massive fan of howard stern
2: Oh, Howard Stern normalized uh, pornography.
1: Well, somehow I don't the think Abda would approve of that. So, anyway, this is the day after. I'm looking at the post art. Do you know the post well, art anyway, for this? Is? We, we,
2: yeah, we, go ahead. We, we only had four TV numbers. So that's the point I want to make here. It's not like now. Yep. I want your audience, your younger audience, to understand. There was a time when there were only four networks on television to watch and there were no movie channels. When I was
1: in Australia as, as a child, we only had four networks as well. We had Channel 7, Channel 9, Channel 10, and then we had the ABC and SBS, which were like uh, public broadcasts. So five. We had five channels on TV when I was a child in the 1990s in Australia. So what you're telling me is not so far-fetched. Anyway, it says here that this film, The Day After, had a 62% share of the viewing audience during its initial broadcast and it ...set a record as the highest-rated television film in history... ...which it held until the 2000s. So according to Wikipedia, this was a very popular television event... ...and what was it about? A nuclear bomb going off, a nuclear war... ...and then most of the film is... ...well, a lot of the film is just about people walking around... ...suffering from radiation sickness. So it's kind of like a film that's meant... ...on some interpretations, Lynn... ...that is meant to get people very afraid of... ...if the nuclear bombs go off... ...you're not just going to die you're going to die a very, very sad, painful, agonizing death. And 62% of TV viewers that night, according to the statistics, were watching this film. Very popular. This is why I talk about propaganda in. People say to me, oh, how come you say nuclear bombs are a hoax and blah, blah, blah? I'm like, let's take a step back. Why would you ever believe in these things in the first place? And I'll tell you why. Because of films like The Day After. And I suggest maybe that was the whole purpose of these things, is to get people very scared of the nuclear bombs.
2: Are you convinced that radiation poisoning is a a myth?
1: Radiation poisoning, I'm not so sure about Radiation in general, I think, probably does exist. Oh, by the way, just,
2: just, yeah, I hate to interrupt here. Apologies for interrupting. There are some Australian veterans who are claiming radiation poisoning. I'd like to know how old they are by now. They're probably in their 90s. You're aware that there are some Australian vets that have... Uh, there's, a, there's a whole population out there It's like Holocaust survivors, right? You know, We all know about Holocaust survivors. Like 100 years, 300 years on, there will still be Holocaust survivors. But we have are called atomic veterans. Are you calling out the atomic veterans?
1: I didn't even know that. they existed. But if, listen, if there's a guy who used to work for the military, and he's now saying he's got all of these ailments and he wants money, I say good luck to him. I don't care what his excuse is. He says he's got radiation sickness or PTSD or whatever. I say give him the money. I'm on his side. Well,
2: I, I knew someone who I used to kind of, uh, who I would sit and, uh, you know, bullshit with at lunch hour <laughs> over at Java Joe's on Baltimore Street, um, who had served in the Air Force. At, at Groom Lake, which is called Area 51. We've all heard about that, right? And, um, he was on permanent disability. This was somebody pretty young, I, I don't know. I guess he was in his 30s. He was in his 30s by then. Uh, this would be back in the 90s. I, I knew this individual. He, he, he was, he was on permanent disability from the VA. He'd been in the Air Force, and he'd been at Groom Lake. Uh, area 51. Where is that? Is that in Utah or Nevada? Where is that exactly? Do you, do you recall? Area 51. Like any... I'm not sure. Yeah.
1: Nevada sounds about wait, wait. right. You know what I can do? I Nevada. can just Google it. Area yeah. 51. Area 51 is the name of a highly classified U.S. Air Force facility within the Nevada Test and Training Range. There you go.
2: Well, so, okay, so they're saying it's in that area where they do the nuclear testing. Now, When he said, Groom Lake, I said, yeah, that's Area 51. He said, yeah, he said, big deal. He said, I never saw anything when I was there. He said, but I had, I said, what'd you do? He said, well, we unloaded pallets off trucks and and rail cars. and They unloaded freight. And apparently some of the freight that he unloaded exposed him to something that caused leukemia. And he was diagnosed by the Air Force. With this leukemia, they sourced it to his handling of this material, whatever it was, because he didn't know these were just pallets, stuff in crates and boxes and you know, metal cabinets, and who knows what. That, that's what he did. He unloaded trucks and had leukemia as a consequence of having worked at this place. And he surmised that, I, that maybe this was nuclear contaminated material. What was you know what would I do? you know, at that point, now I have never believed I I actually raised this issue because I'm a skeptic when it comes I've always known that the UFO thing was a psyop. <laughs> I've always known that. Actually Carl Gustav Jung, way back in the fifties, wrote a piece on the fact that this rep that this was sort of a, a, a modern emergence of a modern myth that represented a kind of um utopian dream or wish fantasy. That people had, that some kind of outside, it's like a belief in God and a deity in a way, that, there, that there, these supernat—these UFOs were going to land and solve all our problems. And he, he uh, chalked it up to the malaise and the disillusionment following World War II and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Jung, yeah, I think, mentioned that, that we're back to the nuclear thing again. So, now, now, in On the Beach, which you should watch because just about all of it takes place in Australia, which is supposed to be the one safe place you can go if there's a worldwide nuclear exchange and this poisonous cloud of radiation that's sickening and killing all living things as it floats across, as the wind currents blow it, Australia would be the last place you could go (laughs) safely. But ultimately, at the very end, Everybody there dies as well. You see the cloud blow through, and the very last scene, you see the empty streets. They don't don't show a lot of bodies or anything, but uh, you should watch On the Beach, really. Before the day after, On the Beach was the narrative. On the Beach, Failsafe was another one.
1: Well, I saw the Failsafe remake with George Clooney when I was a child. So we're talking maybe the early 2000s, they did that one. And of course, the gimmick was that it was a a live-to-air movie, as in what we're seeing on tv they're acting in the studio as we see it i think was the gimmick with that but i i knew even then like they explained that we're doing this as a remake from some film in the past so i went back and watched fail safe as well as part of my prep for the ray west interview now with this the day after by the way so this is a film all about people a nuclear exchange goes off and people are now dying these horrible deaths right here's what it says at the end and this is according to wikipedia but i remember this from when i watched it it says this so people have just spent an hour or two hours watching people die of Radiation sickness, right? That's what they've just spent their evenings doing. At the end of this film, it says this. The catastrophic events you have just witnessed are, in all likelihood, less severe than the destruction that would actually occur in the event of a full nuclear strike against the United States. It is hoped that the images of this film will inspire the nations of this earth, their peoples and leaders, to find the means to avert that fateful day. That's the end disclaimer of a film that was apparently very popular when it went to air originally. 62% TV audience share. 100 million people are saying, watch this. Obviously, I can't verify uh, those claims. But apparently, a very popular film, and that's how they end it by saying that this horrible thing you just watched, in the real life, if there's a nuclear exchange, it's going to be even worse than that. Now, how can someone tell me this isn't propaganda? How can anyone not see that this is blatant, overt, mind-control propaganda?
2: I need to remind your audience that all of these movies and television specials and made-for-TV movies were based on novels, for the most part. Almost every one of them is, and and this is a big problem I have with the way people deconstruct media now. They'll examine uh, a new Netflix series, or or maybe you know they'll they'll, they'll look at a movie or a TV uh, presentation. And won't have any realization, especially when people deconstruct Kubrick. They don't realize that most of, just about all of all of Kubrick's movies are from screenplays that were based on novels or earlier, like Clockwork Orange. That's Anthony Burgess. You could read that novel years before Kubrick decided to make a movie out of it. Dr. Strangelove, which is another one about a nuclear holocaust. Actually, the term holocaust was first conjoined to nuclear before before it became associated with uh, the so-called Holocaust of European Jewry uh, during World War II. That that term, Holocaust, was kind of appropriated, I think, away from the nuclear scare uh, by the people who wanted to create this new religion of Holocaustianity where they could guilt trip the Christian world into continuing to make payouts every year. And that's a whole other discussion, that hoax. But um, this was the, and when you stuck your head between your knees as a uh, 9, 10, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, like I I say, it ended that. It ended when I was uh, 12. When I was, I would say, if it ended 62, the Cuban Missile Crisis took us to the brink of what was supposed to be an actual nuclear war. Jack Kennedy was president. Uh, They interrupted the news and told us that uh, uh, the Russians were setting up these missiles in Cuba that were going to place the United States within range of one of these ICBMs, kind of obviously, a nuclear missile. And uh, allegedly Jack Kennedy sent the U.S. Navy out there to... uh, Embargo. the Russians and surrounded their ships to keep them from landing, and then went into the United Nations and presented pictures, aerial photographs, presumably taken by the U-2 plane, that were alleged to show Russian-Soviet missile installations being set up in uh, Fidel Castro's Cuba to target the United States. And for a period of several days there, I guess the Cuban Missile Crisis probably lasted a few days, um, at least. We were all basically living in a world in which we thought at any moment it was very possible there could be a nuclear, one of these massive nuclear exchanges, and and we'd all be dead. And like I say, you had to stick your head between your knees, cup your hands over the back of your head, and uh, to protect from flying glass. It was a big deal.
1: So it sounds now, like when you were in school because I've heard about this before this idea of duck and cover remember that um was it bert the turtle duck and cover there was that
2: duck and cover that's, that's duck, yeah. duck, and cover, duck and cover duck and cover duck and cover duck and cover that was the what a meme what a meme yeah uh, bert the turtle was the cartoon they made out of that duck and cover. Doc
1: yeah, and what and I'll cover. do is in post, I'll edit that clip in right here so listeners can hear it. You know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about. For listeners who don't know what we're talking about, here is, what's his name? Bert the Turtle? Is it Bert the Turtle? And he's wearing, I can't even see the clip now, but I've got it in my memory. He's wearing like a helmet as well, isn't he? He's wearing like a a helmet to protect him. Anyway, this is a clip that was apparently played in schools Needle decades dumb ago dumb. as part of this Needle nuclear dumb. war programming. Listen, take a listen to this. There
0: was a turtle by the name of Bert
1: The turtle was
0: very alert When danger threatened him, he never got hurt He knew just what to do He ducked and covered Ducked and covered He did what we all must learn to do You. You and you and you and you Sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. This is an official civil defense film produced in cooperation with the Federal Civil Defense Administration and in consultation with the safety commission of the National
1: Education Association. So that was Duck and Cover with Bert the Turtle. Let's fast forward a few decades. I heard you chatting with Abdiphaecologist about this um, school shooting drills. And I heard Ab talking either with yourself or somebody else about how sometimes these drills that they do in schools now, Lynn, they don't even tell the kids that it's a drill until after the fact. So they, so basically, kids are minding their own business at school. They're learning about whatever the hell is the class is teaching them these days about boys being girls or white people being evil, or whatever the class is about. And they get told, guys, there's an emergency. We've got an intruder. And so they go through this process of hours, perhaps in some cases, hiding in their room or escaping to some escape room, whatever the case is, only after this traumatic experience, they're told, oh, that was a drill. Is this what you've heard, Lynn? Because I wouldn't know what happens in America. But is this what you've heard is happening over there?
2: You know, first of all, I think it might be a crime to do that because you're traumatizing. Do it without the consent of the parents first. If you've got to sign consent of the parents that their children were allowed to participate in this, then you might be able to get away with it. You might be able to get away with it, which, remind me, make a footnote here, I want to talk about Chris Kendall's uh, confrontation with the Freemasons out there in uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and the cops, the local cops, uh, setting up a uh, um, tables and stuff to chip the kids out there. There's a video of that I'd like people to locate. Um, Oh, yeah, the drill's. Yeah, I'm saying it would not be legal. Actually, IPS made that point about how when you see these news stories of a shooting, and right away there's kids, kids on camera talking about it. And he says that legally, technically the parents could sue these local news networks or whoever is doing these interviews, because uh, minors are not supposed to be on camera without the consent. Of their parents or guardians. So, as I say, if they were really going to play this kind of really evil, vicious, uh, traumatization, uh, you know what it reminds me of? And for some reason, this is terrible, perverse thought. It makes me think of, uh, theater of the absurd. Um, when in, in the, in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, um, there was a trend in theater to involve the audience. And so, you know, plays would be written where the actors ran up and down the aisle in the audience or grabbed somebody out of the audience. The audience was sort of forced to participate. I'm thinking also of a nightclub routine called, uh, I don't know, is it Sam and Gloria's Italian Wedding? Or This is a, a comedy, uh, sort of a traveling, uh, what do you call it exactly, where the, you actually force the audience to participate in the theater. I think that's the inspiration for this myself. I really do the idea that you, you have a captive audience well that's the cast of thousands that's what happens when you move into a small town with a billion dollars worth of movie equipment and top stars and maybe you want to hire the locals you know to play in the movie remember again it would be illegal illegal for kids to be participating in that without the consent of the parents that's why I would, I would seriously doubt that because it could really open you up to liability. I wouldn't doubt that it could, might occur from time to time. Maybe it's hard. I'll tell you what. That's like a WTC a WTC seven there because you ask yourself, well, who would be stupid enough? To, what school administrator would be stupid enough to allow that? Because they, they they could lose their pension. They could lose their job. It, it it skirts violating the law when you drag kids into it. On the other hand, if you sent out a form to all the parents saying we're going to be having a drill we want your consent for your. Child. of course you kind of sign all that away when you put your kids in the public school system anyway so what would happen if your child came, let's put you in the shoes of a parent and uh, your son or daughter comes home and says hey dad today we, we had a, a drill but they didn't tell us and we were scared shitless <laughs> what would you do then? I mean, wouldn't you be on your... You, you'd be down there. You wouldn't just wait till the next school board meeting. Actually, anybody with any common sense or due diligence wouldn't have their children in the public school system being educated, educated, being socialized and brainwashed and traumatized right now. They wouldn't do that. And so look around at your neighbors. I know you are over there in Bulgaria. But here in America, I look around people that live in this neighborhood. There's just an elementary school right up the road. I jog by it every day. You know, it's a stone's throw away from me. I don't know what they're doing to the minds of those kids in there. I, I I decided not to take that kind of responsibility in life. A lot of it was because of what I saw that the parents that were dumping their kids in daycare and everything else didn't really care. And um, But it, yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt that that doesn't, that if you get the consent of the parents, then you are you can get away with It's the cast of thousands. You can draft all those kids into your army of crisis actors. And at what point will it, it might not make any, there's a kind of banality of evil that occurs here. You remember the Parkland event? They just showed us so many interviews with these Parkland high, or it wasn't even called Parkland High School. It's called uh, Stone, Marjorie Stone. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, special school. It's a special school for special needs kids there in Parkland, Florida. And you just saw them parade these kids on camera one after the other. And they're laughing. They're jucking it up. They say, oh, yeah, we have these drills like every week. And so we didn't know. We thought this might be a drill. But it turned out to be real. Actually, the most recent event in Allen, Texas, has kids. And they might be teenagers, I don't know if they're minors or not. I think they've got to have minors on camera in this Allen, Texas thing. But like I say, that means that there's a signed consent form somewhere that the parent or guardian allowed the studio, the TV network, to put them on camera, uh, fall, you know, uh, spinning some wild tale about a shooting and making themselves a part of this drama. That, that requires parental consent. So that would be my response to your question of well, what do you think of them mixing the real with the fake or for real. There isn't no, the real real with the fake. Is that a case of fake fake versus fake real? Uh, I'm trying to get, this is a new terminology that uh, Tim Osmond of IPS has introduced. It's gotta, it's gotta have some value, but I haven't yet figured out what it means. He says that they're now sort of dividing the fake stuff up into What's fake, fake, but what's fake, real. And that that tends to follow political alignments, so-called left-right political alignments. Are you? Could you explain that to me, Professor?
1: Like, well, I can try my best, but what I've been doing is trying to find out while we've been chatting how many of these drills are going on in America, because obviously I have no idea. Now, according to NBC News, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes below, it says, this is an article from, let me just see, when's this article from? This is from 2020. This is from about three years ago, right? It says this, practicing school lockdowns became more common following the 1999 uh, shooting at Columbine High School, blah, blah, blah. Did,
2: we, did I just hear the word lockdown?
1: Yeah, well, I want to find out how often do these lockdowns. I get
2: triggered lockdowns.
1: by the word lockdown. Yeah, I well, I, I understand. Lockdown. I got and locked down soon. in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia in 2020. For months, I was all alone in a little studio apartment during the madness of corona. And I don't think I'm ever going to recover. So they've got these stats here about how often do they do these drills? Here we go. It says, The portion of public schools in America conducting these drills grew from 40% in 2007 to 95% by 2017, as most states now require them. The exercises range from drills in which students and teachers go through the motions of turning the lights off and locking doors to high-intensity exercises that involve actors portraying gunmen and victims while the sound of gunshots plays. Now, again, I don't know how much they're doing this, but each and every time they do this, the children are being traumatized. And I would suggest that is the whole purpose behind these. That's not a side effect or an unintended consequence. That is the primary purpose of these so-called drills, is to scare the hell out of the kids
2: they're not being traumatized they're being trained and conditioned socialized maybe i i don't want to, even want to use the word educated but they're being socialized their behaviors being socialized and what i want to point to in the case of the parkland Marjorie stoneman douglas students performance is that you actually see them not really taking it all that seriously the one who alleged who spoke with the alleged shooter is smiling and grinning. So, I would dispute your characterization of this as... Here's my defense. Okay, I'm going to be the shyster lawyer that's defending... that's defending this practice, wherever a parent has not given consent, to make it excusable, to rationalize it away. I'm going to say, well, clearly, because these children have had so many drills, the fact that we one day decided to pull it for real and not tell them it was a drill you can see they're all laughing, so they haven't been traumatized at all.
1: Mm, fair enough. Words, well, I hope you're if, right, Lynn. I hope this is not traumatic to if, if the
2: kids. If the kids think, <laughs> here's what happens. This is the problem with repetition, and this is a problem with them running out of ideas and reusing old scripts or trying to just add, change a detail here. or there, rerunning the same script over and over and over again. It attenuates over time. Half of the audience will continue to sit in the theater bored out of their minds and maybe even laughing at it like uh mystery science theater 3000. Is that the one that IPS is always referring to throwing popcorn at the screen? You know, just too tired, too fatigued to get up. But the other half of the audience will just get up and walk out of the theater at a certain point. Now I know these kids are, they're a captive audience and they're in school. It's not like they can just walk out and protest, you know, over this stuff. Um, but, You say they're being traumatized, and my defense as an attorney is to say not really. They're so used to it because they've practiced it so often that they don't really know whether it's real or that it probably – they can assume that this time around it probably is a drill that they just haven't been told. What's your response to that?
1: Yeah, fair enough. So it sounds like you're suggesting that because they do these drills over and over, it desensitizes the children to the point where the next drill won't affect them because they're not even really – taking it seriously. That's what it sounds like you're saying.
2: Exactly. Now, is that the intended effect? One thing that these drills do is it's going to separate the radicals among the kids. This is what I think about, because I was a radical. I was a young radical. I rejected all authority. I got a lot of trouble for it. But it made my life very interesting. Um, if, uh, for example, I refuse to say the Pledge of Allegiance when it was absolutely mandatory in school. We still had school prayer at one point. I, there are a lot of people who want to bring back school prayer. And there may be even some subscribers, some, some of your more brilliant correspondents over at fakeologist.com. I'm thinking of one particular, uh, Frank, who uh, pro- probably would like to restore uh, the Lord's Prayer uh, to, I guess, Muslims would have to say it, too, <laughs> here in America. But there is a sort of conservative wing of the fakeology and auto-hoaxer movement that would probably would like the idea of restoring a state-sponsored, uh, appropriately Christian, I would think, prayer uh, to begin the school day with. But I refused to do the Pledge of Allegiance, even. It got sent down to the principal's office, and uh, that's a whole other story. Um, and then, of course, uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare's case hit the United States Supreme Court, and that ended school prayer uh, at that point. But um, I guess what I'm saying is that one function that an exercise like these drills will have is to immediately select out that handful of well, first of all, the people who are the students who are apathetic, who will do whatever they're told and don't care whether it's real or not. Really, they're just kind of drifting through the day, which is most people. And that tiny, dangerous handful of individuals who are going to be stirring up trouble among the rest, saying, "Hey, we're being traumatized." they're traumatizing us they're manipulating us they're liars they have no authority we've caught look now we've caught them gaslighting us we've caught and this means that they're lying to us about everything they're lying to us about whether we walked on the moon oh you're crazy they're lying to us about the shape of the earth they're lying to us in other words one function that this kind of education and socialization has among other things is to immediately identify and if necessary isolate those dangerous individuals among young children who tend to be rebellious and who who go through life questioning authority, which is what my generation was supposed to be about. Our motto was supposed to be the 60s, question authority. How do you transform that into generation sellout, which is what it became, basically about... Well, it became, the, the baby boomers went from generation question authority to generation sellout uh, in progressive stages, beginning, I would say, well, beginning with the decline of the, the anti-war movement in 73, 74, uh, as, that was eclipsed by Watergate. And then in 76, when, uh, after they removed Richard Nixon in disgrace and Stuck this uh, Christian evangelical Jimmy Carter in there, a racist segregationist governor of Georgia. They made him president as a progressive. A very strange kind of thing. Uh, so that they sold that then because, you know, Nixon didn't go to court. He didn't have to go to court. He wasn't jailed. Nothing happened. All these horrible crimes were committed. A lot of his underlings did do time, though, allegedly. Allegedly. They went to trial and had prison. But that generation sellout allowed that to happen. And then, ninety one, ninety two, 91, 92, when Oliver Stone put out this major Hollywood blockbuster film, uh, JFK, if ever there was a moment when the baby boomers would have stepped forward and said, hey, you know something, we never believed that whole bullshit narrative you gave us where you really traumatized us with a, having a public shooting of a president in a parade in a major American city, and then making us watch the funeral three days later, and then watching us making us watch in real time, live on TV, Jack Rubinstein. Jack Ruby just strode right into that uh, police station garage and pulled out his Saturday night special and plugged Lee Harvey Oswald in the stomach a few times. We got to watch that live on TV. So if you want to talk about using TV to traumatize slash entertain people, Uh, We're talking about the whole uh, JFK debacle.
1: Well, you bring up JFK. What are your thoughts on JFK these days? Because, you know, some people, like my crazy truth uncle Dave J, they believe that on that day, nobody died, nobody got hurt. It was a dummy in that car. What's your take on this JFK thing?
2: Oh, I'm very sympathetic to that. And I I think Miles Mathis may have been among the first to offer uh, forensic evidence for this. But I think he was about the first Miles Mathis in recent times. There may have been others in question who to go so far as to say that that was all was nothing but a stage play. It was nothing but a movie made for TV news, just like 9/11. But I'm inclined to accept that as a very here's I like that from the standpoint of what I call explanatory coherence, because from the very beginning. None of us believe the official narrative, especially when they eliminated any trial or real investigation by having a sec person told us a lone nut did it. Lee Harvey Oswald, who defected to Russia and come back, blah blah blah, ex-Marine, and then another lone nut, Jack Ruby, Jacob Rubenstein, he kills the alleged lone nut assassin. So you got a second lone nut. They introduced right away cognitive, right away cognitive dissonance, explain incoherent narrative, and, and. how they could have expected anybody to buy it at that point, right? I mean, the best you could have come up with was, well, this was a mob hit, and they sent a mob guy in to to silence the Patsy. And that was pretty much what a lot of people ended up with. But here's my problem with all that. The Kennedy family, and they are huge. The Kennedy family and supporters. This is what emotionally, emotionally, me the most, disgusted me, and enraged me the most. Because i got to tell you, I was never a big fan of the Kennedys, <laughs> really. I, I thought Jack Kennedy, I knew Jack Kennedy was a fraud uh, 11 days before they allegedly shot him because he signed off on the recognition of that coup d'etat, that military junta, a bunch of thugs that we were told murdered the legally elected president of the Republic of Vietnam, Ngo Dinh Diem, and his brother, the Secretary of Defense, I think he was, shot them, we were told, shot them and laid out their bodies right there on the grounds of the presidential palace. You might be able to see a picture of that.
1: Actually, I'm looking at a picture right now of the car that JFK was in because you know there's another Mandela effect when it comes to JFK. And what I'll do is I'll say to you, how many people were in the car that day? So obviously you had... JFK. And, oh, you know, I can, no, no,
2: no, no. Well, well, well. I absolutely reject this. This is Mandela bullshit. We uh, the official narrative. The official narrative is that Connolly was in the car, and his wife, and that um, uh, 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 and that Connolly got hit in the wrist by the same bullet. This is the famous magic bullet story. So obviously, they had a driver. They had Connolly and his wife. And they had Jack and Jackie. That's who was in the car. So I don't, you know, that seems kind of, uh, I mean, look, Connolly is the pivotal figure here because he's the one that was supposed to hold the whole story together. You know, he later w- got, was bankrupted, and I think he was, con- he was he was convicted, I think, of uh, John Connolly. He became governor of Texas. He went from being a Democrat, Southern Democrat, to being a Republican. He's the guy that supposedly got the magic bullet in the wrist, But, you know, I'm kind of straying from the point here, because this is what the JFK thing is. It really is a rabbit hole full of pissed-on breadcrumbs that you're supposed to run down, looking at these stupid fucking details. No, only one thing mattered to me. Only one thing mattered to me. Realizing at the age of 12... At 12! At the age of 12! That this official story was utter nonsense, and nobody in my family believed it either. We were watching... We got, got off school that, uh, Monday when they held the funeral. And ever, so we were all playing, running around. Oh, day off school. Good, good deal. You know, we should have more assassinated presidents. <laughs> so we get more days off school. <laughs> and so, um, we're running around and, uh, my father, he was watching it. He says, Hey, come on. They're, they uh, it was just this funeral bullshit. You know, the black hearse and little John John with his salute. And Jackie and her widows. It was all a big performance. We didn't give it that. Boring. Nothing more boring than a funeral parade for a dead president. But um, my father said, hey, they just announced that they're going to be bringing Oswald out. (laughs) So we all gathered around the TV. And we watched this performance of this guy in his fedora hat. and, And, you know, black suit. Jack Ruby come out and shoot Oswald. And it's like we're all in silence when we saw this, right? Uh, can you imagine? Uh, you, you should watch that clip again. You really, why, you've probably seen that clip. You know, Ruby shooting Oswald, to me, is sort of the defining moment of the whole thing. And, and I looked at my mother, and she looked at me, and she said, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Do you know where that's from, by the way?
1: Something rotten in the state of Denmark. No, I don't. You Where's should that know where
2: to... No, I don't oh, know. Come on, Hamlet, huh? like Prince of Denmark.
1: I should have known that.
2: That's Shakespeare.
1: I shouldn't. Can that's I tell you the good. truth? How'd I didn't like... read any Shakespeare in school. Literally uh, none. The
2: English... See, that's what I'm saying. You're Australians. You hate the English language. I know it. You hate Shakespeare
1: Problem. Yes, uh, sir. For... Dear listeners, Shakespeare. when I called Lynn today, today before... this is a true story. I when I called you. Lynn today, because by the way, if you notice that this sounds different to most conversations... I'm talking to Lynn on her home phone. I'm calling her on Skype. So that's why this one might sound a little bit different. And when I called Lynn today, the first, well, the first thing she said was hello. The second thing she said was, now, before we get started, I've got to tell you something. You Australians butcher the Australian language. And I was like, Lynn, it's good to speak to you too. How are you going? How are things? Have you had a nice day? So, but you are correct, Lynn. It is true. Us Australians are not particularly good when it comes to the English language. I agree with you about Especially that.
2: Especially after a few beers especially worse, yeah.
1: yeah. And, and if you want evidence of that just listen. tune into fakeologist.com on a Saturday night you get all the evidence you need now we need to wrap up the first hour of the call in and we've still got a million things to talk about here before well, we do hey, wrap let me up
2: con- yeah, let, me gonna gonna- go, let me wrap up on this book because I think it's very important the question you've raised logic explanatory coherence I'm sorry I tend to go off on tangents with this stuff but at the age of 12 I'm looking around and, and my mother said this I said what is that she said go read it it's Hamlet It's Shakespeare. Go read it. And Hamlet is about a murder. They give him some bullshit story, and it turns out that, uh, he, as he comes back, he discovers his father, the king of Denmark, has been murdered, and his mother, his mother, has married his uncle who did the murder, and, and, you know, the whole thing plays out. And and Hamlet, among other things, has a play within a play. Because the way that Hamlet confronts the guilty parties here is he actually hires some performers to stage a play that tells the story of what actually happened. So it's, it's very it's very interesting that way. But anyway, my mother said go read it. Now I when I it kind of it really started a lifelong love of Shakespeare. Um, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Because what she meant by that was something's rotten here. None of this makes any sense. And so I really felt like it was the historic burden of my generation to undo this craziness. But the thing that infuriated and disgusted me the most was the Kennedy family, and in particular Robert F. Kennedy, who was the attorney general at the time. Every fucking one of them, and that includes their official historians. I get real emotional about this. William Manchester, all the big – all the, you know, the Kennedy family is a huge entourage. They all came down in support of the Warren Commission official narrative of a lone nut. Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, uh, Magic Bullet, uh, you know, they all came down in support of the official narrative, which was an insult to the intelligence of a 12 year old. You understand? I wasn't all that smart. It was an insult to everybody's intelligence. The Kennedy family and their supporters never once questioned the official narrative and, in fact, guilt tripped. It's just like with 9 11. Just like with 9-11, they guilt trip you. and They say, well, why are you... You're hurting the family. You're hurting the family who've been victimized by this. Don't you feel sorry for them? And that is what inclines me to believe that the whole thing was a fake job and that they packed Jack Kennedy off to Hyannis Port or wherever he got... They had estates all over the world, the Kennedys, and that the family is in on it, that the family... The supporters, historians like William Manchester, I don't even know if he's still alive, Theodore White, all the people, this huge entourage of uh, court sycophants that hang around the Kennedy family, but especially the evil Kennedy family themselves. And I'm going to tell you, this RFK, this RFK snake, RFK, well, he was a junkie, wasn't he? Wasn't this guy confirmed? I know Mike Lindell was a crack addict. Isn't RFK Jr. have a background as a heroin addict since we're talking about the Kennedys? I, I want to no know idea. what this guy, I, I want to know what bona fides and credentials this lying sack of shit has to tell me about vaccines or viruses or whatever else he pretends to be an expert. He's a lawyer, right? Yes, absolutely. The number one argument in my book for the idea that that whole JFK thing was staged is a despicable is that I know for sure for sure that the Kennedy family and their supporters would be in on it and would go along with it and that's why they went along with it. They would say we're going to turn him into a saint. We're going to turn him into a hero. Watch what we do. We're going to turn him into a legend. People are going to look back on Camelot. That's when they coined the term Camelot off of this Broadway musical King Arthur, blah, blah, blah. You You know how all that went down. And poor Jackie, who later she married uh, Aristotle Onassis this really corrupt looking Greek shipping magnate and that's a whole other story
1: it is another story when I think of JFK I think of one thing we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other uh, things not because they are easy but because they are hard that's what comes to mind you know what Owen Benjamin
2: has has something interesting to contribute you know what I'm glad you mentioned Owen Benjamin I'm
1: going to add him to our list because while we've been talking I've been adding to this dot point list, which the long-suffering listeners here at conversations know that we never get through all of the dot points. In fact, we usually finish with more dot points that we haven't spoken about than the ones that we have, but I'm adding Owen Benjamin to the list. For what we're going to talk about in the second hour, but we do have to wrap up the first hour. Lynn, we've already gone over time. So we'll come back. We'll talk about a million things, including Owen Benjamin. I want to talk more about Carl Jung, because you mentioned him before. I've got a crazy theory because you mentioned the UFO thing, because Carl Jung wrote a book about UFOs basically being a, Mm, a well, mental projection, like something that is yeah. not real, but people, it's sort of hard for me to describe But He was basically saying they're a hoax, kind of he was saying that. But get this, I've got a theory as to why there are so many people who think they've been abducted. And it's actually way worse than most people realize. So we'll talk about that. You mentioned Miles Mathis, we're going to come back and talk about that. And you mentioned Chris Kendall with the Freemasons. I don't actually know anything about that. So you can tell me all about that and so much more in the second hour. But for the first hour, Lynn, I'm going to go out with a clip from Bill Hicks. And uh, that'll do us for the first hour. The second hour is available at Bonversations.com and JohnTheBond.com. People can go and check it out there. But Lynn gets the final thoughts for the first hour of the call. So, Lynn, let us know anything you want to let us know. I'll put any links you want in the show notes below. But for the first hour, for the public hour that anybody can access, you get the floor. The final thoughts are yours.
2: Well, I, I suppose this question of how they played out the JFK narrative which was a defining narrative for my generation, the baby boomers. It really told us where things were at. It conjoined with the alleged war in Vietnam uh, and this sort of generational rebellion. And yeah, the strongest argument that we've been faked out in a hoax is a disgusting, continuing disgusting behavior of the Kennedy family. That's the only explanation. And now... They are some of them are kind of supposedly breaking from the pack and saying, "Well, yeah, we think it was a CIA conspiracy that killed him." And what they don't want to say is that he was a liar telling us we were going to go to the moon in a few years. And that would seg off nicely into uh, uh it was Owen Benjamin who made me aware that the lo- the name of the lunar rover is the LEM, the Lem. I-, I don't know what that acronym stands for, except that there was a. Uh, the implication Miles Mathis goes into this that JFK may in fact have been gay, and that his lifelong companion Lem I can't think of his last name who lived at the White House was was his gay lover. Now that's kind of off the reservation, but uh, I wouldn't even be aware of that if I weren't a devoted student and listener of Owen Benjamin. So uh, we might get into that as well. That there's even more behind. We're going to go to the moon the lunar rover uh, with the sort of false image of these world stage players that we're presented with and the crazy stories they tell us Kennedy, I love talking about the Kennedy assassination
0: because to me it's a great example of uh, a totalitarian government's ability to you know, manage information and thus keep us in the dark any way they de- Oh, sorry, wrong meaning uh, <laughs> shit That's the meeting we're having tomorrow at the docks. I love talking about Kennedy. I was just down in Dallas, Texas. You know, you can go down there and uh, to Dealey Plaza, where Kennedy was assassinated. And you can actually go to the sixth floor of the school book depository. It's a museum called the Assassination Museum. I think named that after the assassination. I can't be too sure of the chronology here, but... Anyway, they have the window set up to look exactly like it did on that day. And it's really accurate, you know, because Oswald's not in it. Yeah, yeah, so...
2: It wasn't a tent, it was this magnificent thing.
0: Who's cutting my clap? Where's Larry Crown? Remember, you got the flu! You've been listening to Bonversations. Find more episodes at johnlebon.com. We appreciate and thank all of the supporters who make this possible. Now have yourself a lovely day.
2: How dare you!